Welcome to Hanchuk Targets History. I'm your host, Tim Hanchuk. Thanks for joining me this episode. You know, I've been teaching high school history for way too many years, and I love talking about this stuff. So let me share with you some interesting, unique, and little-known historical events. I know you'll be entertained, and if you're not careful, you just might learn something too. So, let's lock and load and take a shot at that target of history and see what we can hit. Let's take a walk down range and see what the target shows us. Well, it looks like today we hit on quite an infamous character from the 1890s, Lizzie Borden. I bet many of you have heard of her, because even after 130 years, the case she was involved with is still discussed, studied, and debated by far more scholarly people than me. So here goes my attempt at recounting this macabre tale in which both her parents were brutally murdered on August 4th, 1892. Let's start with our cast of characters. Our main character is, of course, Lizzie Borden. She was born July 19th, 1860, and lived with her family in Fall River, Massachusetts. Her mother was Sarah Borden, but she unfortunately died when Lizzie was three. Her father was Andrew Borden, a prosperous businessman, who had made his fortune selling furniture and caskets, and through considerable commercial property holdings. He served on the board of directors for a couple of textile mills, and was president of the Union Savings Bank. When our story takes place, his estate was valued at $300,000. Today, that'd be in the neighborhood of $9 million. Lizzie also had a sister named Emma, who was nine years her senior. Both she and Lizzie had had a solid religious upbringing. The family attended Central Congregational Church, and Lizzie had taught Sunday school for a while, along with being involved with such groups as the Christian Endeavor Society and the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Three years after her mother died, Lizzie's father Andrew got married again to a woman named Abby Gray, who became Lizzie's stepmother. I'll say more about their relationship in a minute, but first, Let's finish the main characters. We just have two to go. At the time of our story, the family employed a live-in maid named Bridget Sullivan, though the family called her Maggie. She had recently immigrated from Ireland and was 25 years old. Finally, we have John Morse, the brother of Lizzie and Emma's deceased mother, Sarah, so obviously that made him their uncle. So that's our cast of main characters. Now let's get the stage set. Even though he was quite wealthy, Andrew had a reputation for frugality. The family lived at 92 Second Street in a sizable three-story house. The neighborhood was an affluent one, but hardly where Fall River's wealthiest residents lived. They, including some of Andrew's cousins, lived in the far more fashionable neighborhood known as The Hill. It was farther from the industrial areas of the city and was located on, well, a hill. Another example of Andrew's frugality is that the Borden house lacked indoor plumbing. I know you're saying, but wait, it was the 1890s. Indoor plumbing wasn't that common. Well, by this time, it was quite common in the homes of the wealthy. As a matter of fact, even some homes of the upper middle class were beginning to enjoy this amenity at this time. Yeah, Andrew could have easily afforded to install indoor plumbing to the family home. 
He just chose not to because he didn't want the expense. You know what? Why don't we take a quick tour of the Borden house, since that's where our story will play out. The rectangular-shaped house had one of its shorter sides to the street. The front door was located on the right-hand side of the front. Inside the front door was an entry hall with stairs leading to the second floor on the right. To the left was a door to the parlor. On the back wall of both the entrance hall and the parlor were doors leading to the sitting room, which was located to the right-hand side of the house. It had a door on its left to the dining room, and on its back wall, a door to the kitchen. The kitchen was directly behind the sitting room. There was a door on its left wall leading to the dining room as well, and another a little farther back leading to the side entry hall with the side door and also the back stairs. Okay, so that's the first floor. Now let's head upstairs. We'll return to the front entry hall and take that staircase. The stairs made a turn to the left and wound up on the second floor landing. If one faced the back of the house, on the immediate left was the guest bedroom. This was directly above the parlor below. On the back wall of the landing was the door to Lizzie's bedroom, which was over the sitting room. On the left wall of Lizzie's bedroom was a door that led to a smaller bedroom that was used by Emma. This would be over the front half of the dining room. Now here's the thing. On the back wall of Lizzie's bedroom was a door leading to what was the master bedroom, shared by her father Andrew and stepmother Abby. To give the couple some privacy, this door was constantly closed and locked. On Lizzie's side, it had a simple hook-and-eye fastener, plus her bed was pushed up against it at a 45-degree angle. On the other side, Andrew had the door bolted and placed a bookcase in front of it. What this effectively did was to cut the second floor in half. The three rooms I've just described were only accessible from the front stairs. So let's head to the back stairs and see where they take us. There was a flight going down into the basement and another going up. A small landing on the second floor had the door leading to the master bedroom. This would be above the kitchen. On the left-hand wall of the master was a door leading to Mrs. Borden's dressing room, which would correspond with the back half of the dining room below. Continuing up the back stairs would put one on the third floor. Up here, there was a small plain bedroom for the maid Maggie Sullivan. There was also an unfinished bedroom next to it, and the rest of the space was open and used for storage. So now that we know the characters and have set the scene, let's see what happened. In the summer of 1892, Lizzie was 32 and Emma was 41. Neither girl had ever married, and both still lived at home, in what could be described as rather a tense household. From her youth, Lizzie never seemed to get on well with her stepmother, whom she believed married her father for his money. She always addressed her stepmother as Mrs. Borden and was quite evasive when asked how cordial their relationship was. Later testimony from Maggie the Maid said that by this summer, both Lizzie and Emma rarely ate meals with their parents. Now there's a story that says that in May of that year, Andrew killed a number of pigeons in the family barn with a hatchet. 
The reason for this was that he thought they were attracting local children onto the property to try to hunt them. The story goes on to say that Lizzie, who had recently built a roost for the pigeons, was very upset by what her father had done. The thing is, though, that we're not sure this event really happened. Some sources say it did, while others say it's just a story to add to the reasons Lizzie might have been angry with her father. You know what? Let's get back to what we do know. Leading into that summer, tensions had been growing in the family. It seemed that Andrew was making it a practice to give gifts of real estate to members of Abby's family. After Abby's sister was given a house, the girls were furious. They demanded that their father give them the house they had lived in until their mother died. Andrew had been using it as a rental property and sold it to his daughters for one dollar. A little while later, the girls turned around and sold the house back to their father for five thousand dollars. In today's money, that would be around a hundred forty thousand in change. Not a bad little return on their investment. This real estate deal with their father might have temporarily appeased Lizzie and Emma, but it did nothing to lessen the growing tensions in the family. In the middle of July, a family argument took place that caused both sisters to take vacations to New Bedford. We're not sure what this argument was about, but considering the fact that the girls took off for a while, it must have been pretty bad. During the last week of July, Lizzie returned to Fall River, but actually stayed at a local boarding house for an additional four days before returning home. During the first days of August, the entire Borden household had been quite ill. Abby immediately feared that perhaps some unknown person had tried to poison them. She based this fear on the fact that Andrew was not well-liked around town. Though, who would go so far as to try to poison the entire family was unknown. In reality, as we'll find out later, the household suffered from food poisoning. It seems that some mutton, which was served over the previous few days, had been left out on the stove and had gone bad. By August 3rd, the worst of the illness had subsided, though some, like Maggie, were still not up to par. On the evening of August 3rd, John Morse came to visit. Andrew invited him to stay for a few days to ostensibly talk about some business matters relating to property transfers. So Morse spent the night in the guest bedroom. The following morning, August 4th, the household ate an early breakfast. Present was Andrew and Abby, Lizzie, Morse, and Maggie Sullivan. Emma was away at the time, visiting Fairhaven, a town about 16 miles away, so she missed out on all the fun. After breakfast, Andrew and Morse went into the sitting room to talk. They talked for almost an hour, until Morse left at 8.48 to go buy a pair of oxen. He also had a niece in town and planned on stopping by her place for a brief visit. He intended to return to the Borden house by noon, for lunch. Shortly after this, say a little after nine, Andrew left the house for his usual morning walk. Also at this time, Maggie got started washing some of the windows. And now things get interesting. Tidying up the guest room was a usual chore for Lizzie and Emma, but that morning, Abby went upstairs to make the bed. 
She did this sometime between 9 and 10.30. While in the guest bedroom, Abby was confronted by a person carrying a hatchet. She was facing this person as they swung the hatchet and struck the side of her head. This created a gash just above the ear and was with such force that it caused her body to turn. She fell face down on the floor, causing contusions to her forehead and nose. The killer then stood over her body and struck the back of her head 17 times. Needless to say that after this, Abby was very much dead. At around 10.30, Andrew returned from his walk. He took out his key, intending to enter through the front door. Much to his surprise, the door wouldn't open, even with the key. He began to knock to get someone's attention. Maggie, who had finished cleaning the windows, heard the knocking and came to open the door. Much to her surprise, the door seemed to be jammed, and it took some tugging to get it open. She would later testify that immediately after she got the door unstuck, she could hear Lizzie laughing from the second floor landing. Now think about that for a second. At this time, Abby was dead, and it would be difficult for somebody on the landing not to see her body through the open door of the guest bedroom. Lizzie would later claim that Maggie could not have heard her because she hadn't been on the second floor all that morning. She also said that upon greeting her father, he asked her where Abby was. She told him that a messenger had delivered a note to Abby, asking her to come visit a sick friend, so that's where she must be. She also said she helped him take off his boots and put on his slippers before he laid down on the sitting room sofa for a nap. By the way, this slippers story was contradicted in a later photograph, which showed Andrew still wearing his boots. Anyway, Lizzie then told Maggie that there was a sale at a local department store and that she had permission to go. After spending the morning washing windows in the August heat and still feeling the after-effects of the food poisoning, Maggie declined and instead went to her third-floor room for a nap. Now, while Andrew was napping, someone came into the sitting room with a hatchet and struck him in the head ten or eleven times. The blows tore open his head, and one of them split one of his eyeballs cleanly in two. This fact and the way his body was laying on the sofa suggested that he had been asleep when the attack began. Like Abby, this left Andrew very much dead. At 11.10, Maggie was awakened from her nap by Lizzie frantically calling from downstairs. Maggie, come quick, she yelled. Father's dead. Somebody came in and killed him. The police were summoned, and Dr. Bowen, the family physician, hurried over from his house across the street. The doctor examined Andrew and saw that the wounds were still oozing blood, indicating that this murder had been very recent. He estimated the time of death at about 11 o'clock. The police arrived and asked Lizzie where her stepmother was. She told them that Abby had received a note asking her to visit a sick friend. Lizzie also said that she thought Abby must have returned home already. She asked if someone might go upstairs and look for her. Maggie and a neighbor named Mrs. Churchill, who had come over to console Lizzie, went upstairs. As they made the left-hand turn on the stairs, their eyes came level 
with the second floor. Through the open door of the guest bedroom, they could clearly see Abby, face down in a pool of blood. Wow, this is almost unbelievable. Two shockingly brutal murders, committed in the span of an hour or so, in the home of a wealthy family in an affluent neighborhood. What type of fiend would be capable of such violence? The police were already on the scene, and they certainly had quite an investigation on their hands. Where would it lead them? Who would be arrested? Would anyone hang for this crime? Well, kind listeners, I'm afraid I'm going to have to leave you hanging. (laughs) Yep, this will be a two-part episode, and next week we'll find out about the police investigation, the inquest, and trial. Thank you for tuning in. You know, if you like this episode, please tell your friends and check out some of my other episodes. I very much look forward to sharing part two of Lizzie Borden with you next week.